Let's hear God's word from the book of Romans, chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness for I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say them branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree... How much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness, in part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel... They are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all.
Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of your word, which is undoubtedly challenging for us, we pray that you would help us. Help us, Lord, whatever we may not understand, to understand the greatness of your design, to marvel at your goodness, to cry out with Paul, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Lord, may the end result of our time in your word today be that we praise you for your inscrutable judgments, for your unsearchable mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whenever you dip into the book of Romans, as we're doing today, it's helpful to remember where you are. Broadly speaking, Romans is divided into two sections. You have the doctrinal section from chapter 1 through the end of chapter 11, where there's very few exhortations. There's not much that Paul tells you to do in that section. There are a couple of imperatives in chapter 6. I understand that. There's a lot of implications. There's a lot of applications of you should do this based on what he says, but Paul himself does not give a lot of instructions on do this or don't do that in those first 11 chapters. In chapters 12 through 16, on the other hand, there's still doctrine. He's still teaching you. He's still explaining about what God is doing and why and how, but there's also a lot more commands. There's a lot more imperatives. There's a lot more do this, don't do the other. So we're still in the doctrinal section of Romans when we read chapter 11. But we're within a subset of that doctrinal element. If you remember how Romans goes, when Paul reaches chapter 8, he has that magnificent lyrical ending to chapter 8 where he's saying that nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, as you're reading that, you feel happy. That's joyful, isn't it? And then all of a sudden, there's a shift in mood when you come to the beginning of verse 9. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Well, what happened here? Obviously, there's a transition of thought that is accompanied with a transition of mood. Well, what Paul has been talking about in Romans chapter 8 as he leads up to here is how God has saved and will never lose. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, which comes to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And he talks about God's predestination or foreordination. God has chosen. God has called. God has justified. God has glorified. We're saved. Well, where did this sorrow come from? Why is he talking about this great sorrow that he's continually experiencing? Well, 
he's anticipating, as he's been doing throughout the book of Romans, he's been anticipating potential objections or misunderstandings. Well, somebody might say, you know what, Paul? Romans chapter 8 sounds great, but we're having trouble believing it because what about Israel? What about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Were they not chosen? And yet, look at them now. What situation are they in? So Paul addresses the objection to the doctrine of election and everything that's built on it in the case of Israel. And he takes Romans 9, 10, and 11 to address that. Now, clearly we cannot expound on Romans 9, 10, and 11 in one Sunday morning sermon. All of this is just setting the context a little bit. What I want you to notice is Romans chapter 8, Paul is joyfully, lyrically praising God for how nothing separates us from his love in Christ Jesus. And then he has great sorrow. But where did we end this section? We ended with, of him, through him, to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. We ended with a magnificent doxology again. So Paul deals with the doctrine of election, with its difficulties, with its challenges, and it is a challenging doctrine to our hearts in many ways, as well as to our heads. He deals with a historical objection to the doctrine of election in the reality that at that time, most of the Jewish people had not embraced the gospel, did not believe, and Paul specifically talks about them being hardened. And yet he still comes out to a place of praise. We don't have time to expound on all of it today, as profitable as that would be. So what I want to look at is really basically two things. First of all, we have Paul's strong desires. And then secondly, we have God's strange design. And those two points will help us, hopefully, to enter into the perspective of these chapters and to wind up where Paul does, sincerely, fervently praising God, even though there are a number of things that don't go our way. So what is Paul's strong desire? Well, he says it at the beginning of chapter 9. Look at verse 3, if you have your Bible open. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren... My countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He says it again, chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. And he implies it again in chapter 11, verses 13 and 14. I speak to you Gentiles, and as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles... I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are in my flesh and save some of them. What does Paul want? Paul wants his countrymen, fellow Israelites, to be saved. That is Paul's strong desire. It's such a strong desire that in the absence of its fulfillment, he has great sorrow and continual grief in his heart. It's such a strong desire that it turns into prayer. He keeps that matter before the Lord in prayer. 
It's such a strong desire that even though he's the apostle to the Gentiles, even though that's his calling and his focus and his mission, he still tries to provoke them to jealousy and to have them be saved in that sort of backhanded way. This is a strong desire from Paul. He fervently desires the salvation of his countrymen. Now, before we go any further, there is a word of application here, and that is that we ought to be like Paul. We also ought to fervently desire the salvation of our family, of our extended family, of our loved ones, of our neighborhood, of our countrymen. Now, Paul had some particular reasons that maybe would not apply to us in quite the same way. But Paul desired the salvation of others. And this is a good thing for us to review ourselves about. Do we desire the salvation of others? I'd also point out that Paul is teaching the doctrine of election in chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. And yet it is in chapters 9 through 11 that Paul expresses the most fervent desire for other people to be saved. It's also where Paul talks about the freeness of the gospel offer more clearly than anywhere else. I'm thinking of Romans chapter 10, where he quotes from the book of Joel, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Did Paul believe in the doctrine of election that God has from all eternity chosen who will be saved? Yes, Paul did. We believe it. It's not exclusively taught by Paul, but we believe it in no small measure because of what Paul says in Romans and in Ephesians. Other places as well, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, but especially Romans and Ephesians. There are other parts of Scripture that teach it. It's taught from Genesis to Revelation, really. But Romans and Ephesians set it out in more detail than anywhere else. Well, those are letters from Paul. Did Paul believe in election then? Yes. Yes, he absolutely did. Did Paul's belief in election stop him from desiring the salvation of others? No, it did not. Did it stop him from desiring that salvation fervently with his whole heart so that it even caused him pain? No, it did not. Did it stop him praying about it? No, it did not. Did it stop him from proclaiming the gospel every which way he could? No, it did not. So, If our doctrine of election does not have the same impact on us that Paul's doctrine of election had on him, it may be that we're a little confused in how we receive it. We're a little messed up in how we emphasize it. The doctrine of election is in no way contrary to fervent desire for the salvation of others. The doctrine of election is in no way contrary to the free, the open, the widespread preaching of the gospel. Paul was able to believe in election, desire the salvation of his countrymen, pray for it, and preach to that end. We need to imitate Paul on all of those particulars. Now, what comes with a fervent desire for others to be saved? Well, it is accompanied with grief, isn't it? Paul talks about having great sorrow and continual grief in his heart. That's one reason we sometimes dial back on our desire to see people saved is we're afraid of all the torment. We're afraid of all the internal suffering that comes along with it. Because the reality is that everybody here has people they know, people they care about, people they love, 
in the family or in the neighborhood or in the country, and they're not saved. And when you think about it, that is burdensome. That does weigh you down. That is a grief of heart. What did Paul do with that? Well, he didn't deny it. He felt it. He experienced it. And he continued to pray and preach. Now, it wasn't the only thing Paul experienced, but it was an element. It was part of his reality. That calls upon us to be courageous. That calls upon us to embrace suffering when we desire the salvation of others, and yet we don't see it happening. But Paul didn't say, well, you know what? I went that, but apparently God doesn't, so I'm just going to give up. He didn't do that. He continued to pray. He continued to have this grief in his heart. He wanted this so fervently that he was willing to be accursed himself if that would do his countrymen any good. Do we know anything about that? Do we know this strength of desire for others to be saved? Or are we complacent? You know, I'm okay. Whatever happens to everybody else... You know, that's their problem. That was not Paul's attitude. And I think in this, we should be like Paul. We should strive to be like Paul. Obviously, he's generally going to be ahead of us. But we can at least set this as something we aim at. We want to have such a fervent desire for the salvation of others that we pray about it, we share the gospel with them, and that we embrace the pain that They're not saved yet, and we don't know whether they will be. We don't deny it. We don't turn away from it. We don't just look to feel better about it ourselves. That was not Paul's approach. So we have Paul's strong desire. I don't know that there's a stronger expression than I could wish that I myself were accursed to indicate the depth and the reality of this desire. It was very genuine. And yet, things were not working out the way Paul would have wanted. There is a remnant, according to the election of grace, Paul himself, there were other Jewish believers, but by and large, the bulk of the nation was not embracing the gospel. Instead, all day long, God stretched out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people, as he says at the end of chapter 10, quoting from Isaiah. So what does Paul do with that? Well, that brings us to God's strange design. This really picks up in verse 25 of chapter 11, but verse 32 gives us the bottom line here. God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. Now, that is a strange design. Who in the world would have thought that committing everybody to disobedience or to unbelief, that's the prelude to having mercy upon all. God's design is strange. And there's no question, it's hard for Paul. I mean, this is, this is maybe my subjective impression, but as he's writing Romans 9, 10, and 11, of course, he's dictating it out loud to Tertius, who wrote the letter. I can't help imagining Paul sort of walking up and down, dictating this letter, and... I have the feeling that these things are becoming clear in his own mind as he's saying them out loud. Like he's really wrestling with this. And as he says it, as because if you notice in chapter 11, he says the same thing multiple times. 
I think that's characteristic. It's becoming clear to him as he's explaining this to the Romans. And poor Tertius, you know, writing furiously there as Paul gets carried away in the rush of thought. So Paul himself comes to this conclusion, I would take it, as sort of a surprise. Not that he didn't have the raw materials for it before, but he's never put it this way before. And then he sees, as he wrestles with it, as he hangs on tight to his desire for his countrymen to be saved, as he hangs on tight to the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation, that God raised up Pharaoh for this end, to show his power in Pharaoh, also that God called Jacob and rejected Esau and all the other examples that he gives. As Paul hangs on very tight to the truth of all of that, he finally sees a way to put it all together. God does what he does. God commits them all to disobedience in order to have mercy on all. Now, this is all is not all without exception. This is not an all that includes Pharaoh, for instance, or Esau. But from the beginning of the letter, Paul has made the point that Jew and Gentile are in the same boat. They're sinners. They've fallen short of the glory of God. He's made the point that the gospel is for both, that there's one way of salvation for both. God intends to have mercy upon both. Now, you could say this with reference to the whole course of human history. You could say this with Respect to the fundamental puzzle. Why did God allow Adam and Eve to fall into sin? Well, had there been no sin, we would never have known God's goodness under that specific aspect of mercy. We would have known that God was good, but we would never have known that God was gracious, that God pardoned the guilty. We would never have known how God had compassion on the miserable. And in this specific instance, the conundrum of chosen Israel rejecting the promised Messiah, Paul says that, first of all, there is a remnant. And then he also looks forward to a ingathering, to a time when there will be far more conversions than there have been so far. But what that leads him to do is to say, That God's purpose, even in disobedience of people, even in the unbelief and the rebellion shown by the human race, God's purpose there is still mercy. Well, with that realization, Paul is back to being joyful. The sorrow isn't gone. It's still there in his heart. The prayers have not ended. He keeps those up. But the joy has come back because he's worshiping God for these mysterious, unsearchable, inscrutable ways. But he's worshiping God. Well, hopefully, there are some very clear applications to us as well. We have desires. We have strong desires. And we have strong desires for good things for things that would seem to be very much in keeping with the will of God. And yet God doesn't grant them. God has a different plan. God goes his own way and doesn't ask us what we think about it. And that can be very hard. We have sorrow and grief and heaviness because here are these strong desires that are not met. So what should we do? 
Well, I think we need to imitate Paul. Don't give up on the desire. If you have a desire for something good, don't give up on it just because it hasn't come about. Don't stop praying about it. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they should be saved. But understand that God accomplishes his purposes in strange ways. Understand that God's ways are higher than our ways. We're never going to be able to figure it out. We're never going to be able to predict it. We hang on to the truth that God is in control. We face the objections that that means that then this is all his fault. That objection comes up in chapter 9, and Paul faces it. Paul answers it. He puts us in our place, telling us we have no right to question God, to second-guess him. But he doesn't just say that. He also goes on to show us that in God's strange design, mercy prevails. God has mercy more widely than we would have expected. And he leads us in worshiping God for what God does, even for the strange, even for the inscrutable part. So what is it today where you say, I don't understand what God is doing. I don't like God's plan. Where is it that you say, I have a strong desire, and it's a strong desire God should grant because it's something good. And yet, it's not happening. Was Paul wrong to desire the salvation? No, he was not wrong to desire the salvation of Israel. And you notice he didn't give that desire up. But it didn't lead him to turn away from the truth. It didn't lead him to back down. He didn't get God off the hook by pretending God wasn't sovereign. He asserted the sovereignty of God. He asserted the reality of the problem. He kept praying about it. But as he explored God's design, he realized that God's mercy runs deeper than Paul's mercy. God may not do things the way we would have wanted or hoped or expected. The way God does things may seem harsh, unkind, inconsiderate. Might seem like God could make things so much easier than he does. But God has a strange design, and yet it's a design of mercy. And so we continue to go to him. We continue to offer up our strong desires to him in prayer. But we remember that his ways are unsearchable. His footsteps are hidden in the sea, as it says in Psalm 66. We can't trace out what's happening. But as the heaven is higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. God concluded all in unbelief. God committed all to disobedience in order to have mercy upon all. That is a God that you can worship. You don't have to understand how it all works, but that is a God you can worship for his unsearchable judgments, his ways past finding out from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.